Welcome back to The Real News Network. I'm Paul Jay in Baltimore, and this is Reality Asserts Itself. We're beginning a new series of interviews, and this is with a man who's been studying political economy of Israel for many years, although he's rather young for me to say many years, but he has. And he speaks, I think, with the maturity of someone not quite so young. He's been working at the issue of the political economy of occupation. He's been looking at the political economy of the Israeli national security state. And we're going to try to have a conversation that gets beyond some of the normal critique back and forth. Partly get to know through him more of the Israeli psyche, through his psyche. And then we're going to begin with his own personal biography, although he's far from typical. But we're also going to start to look in some of the episodes or segments of this series, what might a solution, a real possible, possible solution, what might that look like? So, without further ado, now joining us in the studio is Shir Hever. He's an economic researcher in the Alternative Information Center, a Palestinian-Israeli organization active in Jerusalem and Beit Sehor. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. His research focuses on international aid to the Palestinians and to Israel, the effects of the Israeli occupation on the Palestinian territories and on the Israeli economy, and the boycott divestment and sanctions campaign against Israel. He's writing his PhD dissertation on the privatization of security in Israel. His first book was Political Economy of Israel's Occupation, Repression Beyond Exploitation. It was published by Pluto Press in 2010. Thanks for joining us, Shir. Thanks for having me. So, as viewers know, we usually start off with the first segment with some personal background and then move into some of the issues. So. We'll do that again. And, and I'm particularly interested uh, in, in your background, Cher, because you're a bit of an anomaly. Uh, there are others like you, uh, but not many. By that, I mean people that have grew up in Israel who have come to uh, progressive anti-Zionist conclusions and, and more than coming to conclusions, you've been very active. Uh, what kind of home did you grow up in? Where, where did you, where, when, where and when were you born? And what was the political atmosphere of your household? I was born in Jerusalem, and uh, I was born into a lefty household, a, a critical household. And the most important thing that I, that I think my, my parents uh, taught me and, and raised me with is this idea that I have to be um, aware of my own privileges and to take responsibility for them. Um, because Israeli society is extremely divided uh, and extremely hierarchical, and I'm lucky to to have been born to to uh, to, to have been born male, white, Jewish, Ashkenazi, uh, so in all of these categories in which I had an advantage, uh, and 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 my parents to told and me what, this is an unfair advantage. And what did your parents do? Uh, my father uh, still teaches at at university. Uh, and he studied political literature, and actually he specialized a lot on uh, uh, po uh, political poetry of uh, fascists, of, of Zionist fascists. Uh, and Zionist fascists? Yes, yes. Um, and uh, so he, he was very, uh, he, from a very critical point of view, but, but uh, uh, he, he was very open to, to studying also those people he didn't agree with. Um, now, just because it's an interesting kind of historical note, there's kind of two types of Zionist fascists. There's Zionists who are simply very aggressive against Palestinians and people call them fascists. Yeah. And then there's Zionists who loved Mussolini. Yeah, I'm talking about the second kind. I'm talking about real uh, uh, people who, who really adopt this kind of Zionist uh, 
uh, or th this kind of fascist ideology that the state is above everything and that we all have to conform to a certain uh, idea and that we should find our great leader. Um, so that kind of Zionism uh, is not mainstream, actually, uh, and, and uh, it's not in power. I, I, in, in many demonstrations that I had the chance to go to, uh, people tend to, to shout uh, that fascism will not pass. Uh, but, but of course, when you look at it from an, a, a more academic point of view, there's a difference between fascism and other kinds of repressive regimes. And I would say Israel is a colonial regime, a colonialist regime, uh, in which um, th there's apartheid, there's very deep entrenched repression, but in a colonialist system, there's always fear. And you grow up with this fear also. You always the, the know. The Jew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I uh, um, would, would go to certain areas or when I took a, a taxi with a Palestinian driver, then even my, my closest family would, would get nervous about it. And then it, it made me wonder, how come you taught me that everybody's equal, but you're still afraid of, of Palestinians? Um, well, actually, when I was asking the question, did you grow up afraid, I was actually, did you grow up afraid of the Israeli government, Israeli public opinion, because it sounds like your father and you uh, have opinions that are mm -hmm. certainly now in the minority in Israel, but, and, and, and the, it's become so aggressive in terms of the level of racism and how aggressive it is against people like you. Well, no, it's not aggressive against people like me. That's one of the things that it's very important for me to say because, like I said, you have to be aware of your privileges. Well, I, I, I take it you're not as aggressive as it is against Palestinians. Yeah. But I've seen some of these protests, like with you know Leah Tarachansky, our journalist who covers, and they see her there, and, and sometimes some of the protesters come over and you know they attack her with, with great vicious level vicious level of rhetoric. Yeah, re rhetoric, sure, but uh, and and of course, if if you do uh, things that are, if you if you say uh, speak out your mind in a certain situation, in a right wing demonstration, for example, you could be severely beaten up. That's certainly true, but um, nevertheless, Israel is extremely dependent on the West and extremely dependent on on good relations with uh, Western countries. So, in order to preserve the image of a liberal democracy, uh, there has to be one group in Israel that has freedom of speech and I happen to belong to that group. I was able to write what I wanted to write and say what I wanted to say without being harassed by the authorities. Um, and uh, that's something that, that unfortunately uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel are not able to do. And many of my colleagues who don't happen to come from this privileged group are not able to do. So it is liberal democracy for a very small percentage of the population. And this is something is part of your milieu as you grow up because a lot of this is, is transmitted from your father to you. Yeah. And yeah. your mother is your mother's on the same page? Yes, yes, my mother is a pacifist and uh, even though she she was a government employee, she was very critical of her work during her work in the government. Uh, and she comes also from a family of, of fighters. Uh, uh, the, the family, uh, her, her father fought in the Palmach, the Israeli uh, terrorist group that uh, uh, helped uh, uh, commit the Nakba. Uh, well, that's actually an interesting question then. How, yeah. how, where were your grandparents in all this and how did they think about your parents' politics? And, and then yours. Yeah, well, so, so my, my close family, my, my immediate family, they were very supportive of, of my opinions and, and we, we had many political debates at home, sometimes arguments, but, but in the end, I think from, for the outsider, it doesn't seem like we're that much far apart. When you go a little bit further to the extended family, then that's a, a whole different story. And um, most of the family on my mother's side stopped speaking with me after I decided not to go to the army. 
Um, and so, yeah, her, uh, my mother's parents, uh, who, who were fighters in the Palmach, they had a completely different worldview and a very uh, um, a Zionist right-wing uh, perspective uh, in which they believe that all of the, these policies against Palestinians were completely justified. And you, your grandparents, were any of them, when did they come to Israel? Did you have direct family that were killed during World War II? Yeah, so this is actually the exact, uh, um, the, the interesting intersection of two stories because my mother's side of the family came to Palestine before uh, the Holocaust, before uh, the Second World War, and participated in the Nakba against Palestinians. And so they, my came, father's they family, came during the 30s or 20s? Yeah, over, over uh, some time, uh, uh, but, but yeah. And my uh, father's family came right after the war. They escaped from the Nazis in Poland and the vast majority of the family in Poland was exterminated by, by the Nazis. Um, so they escaped to the Soviet Union where they lived uh, pretty harsh years during the war and then uh, the family uh, scattered again and that part of the family that chose to go to, go to Palestine, to Israel, happened to be my side of the family. So just to go back to the side of the family that came during the 20s and the 30s, it's an important note how much, uh, you could say, repression or persecution of Palestinians by Jews that emigrated already was taking place in the 20s and 30s. I've seen uh, you know, newspaper articles and debates that were going on you know, sort of amongst progressive Jews around the world. And uh, the amount of, I read stories of factories that had been purchased where Jews would take over the factory and fire all the Palestinians. Yeah. Already the pressure to try to force Palestinians out of the area. That is a concept called Hebrew labor. And it was done very openly and, and without shame because it, there, there was, at that point of time, no concept that uh, such structural and uh, comprehensive racism against a particular group of people is something that Jews should also be worried about. That could, I mean, it, it wasn't something uh, that, uh, uh, that was even in people's minds so much because Palestinians were part of the scenery, part of the back, uh, background and not treated as... as the native inhabitants of Palestine. Um, but, but it has to be said also that uh, during those fights, it wasn't, even though it was a colonial situation in which uh, Zionists were, were supported by foreign powers uh, in coming and colonizing Palestine, uh, it wasn't clear if they're going to succeed or not. And it wasn't clear until 1948 whether they would succeed or not. So from the, per from the personal stories of these people, they saw themselves as, as heroes or, or as overcoming a great adversity and not as people who had all their options and decided that here's a little piece of land that we want to add to our collection. From their point of view, this was their chance to have their own piece of, of land. Um, and, and when looking at the colonial powers, the European colonial powers operating all over the world, they didn't think that what they were doing was so strange or peculiar. Yeah, the, the idea of being a, a colonial, colonialist was not such a bad thing. In fact, the whole first half of the 20th century, and certainly the early parts, it was considered, you know, that's the way the world is. Yeah, Theodore Herzl, the, winner, uh, the winners the, win. The, the founder of Zionism in, in many uh, 
uh, views, uh, said that uh, um, Zionism, the, the, the colonization of Palestine is a colonial question. He actually wrote a letter to Cecil Rhodes uh, to, uh, to ask him for advice about how to, colonialize, how to colonize a, a piece of territory. And they, they rationalize it that they are a, a force of, of, the, of the growth of civilization and the yeah, civilizing yeah, and uncivilized peoples and such. Yeah. He said the Jewish state would be a beacon for, for the nations. It sounds uh, like Reagan, would, yeah. Yeah, they would br bring, uh, uh, bring progress to Palestine. All right, let's bring this back to you again. Yeah. So, so you grow up, your parents are, are very are progressive and are, are, are you know, very critical or anti-Zionist themselves, yes? No, no. Uh, critical. The, they were critical, but they were Zionists. Okay. And the shift to, un, to uh, I wouldn't say directly to anti-Zionism. And what, what, what we mean by that and, and the term, whether you think there should be the state of Israel as a Jewish state. So they believed yeah. it should be. Yes. They they, they, at at that point, they did. Okay. Um, and, and during the 90s, there was, uh, the Oslo process began, there was a coalition between uh, Itzhak Rabin uh, from the Labour Party and Meretz, which was the party that they supported. Meretz was the liberal uh, uh, party for, for human rights, but still a Zionist party. Um, and uh, this coalition started uh, to, to negotiate with, with uh, Yasser Arafat and to, to start the Oslo process, but at the same time, they would implement these policies that were just uh, uh, completely undemocratic. Uh, and, uh, for example, to take 400 people who were suspected of being members of the Hamas party without a trial and just deport them. And at that point, my, my parents had a kind of crisis of faith, and they decided not to support this party anymore. And I would say this is the moment where, where Zionism was no longer accepted um, how old, were, how old were you? Uh, I was in high school. Mm. So uh, during these discussions at home, uh, we, would, we would talk about these things. And does your thinking evolve along the same lines around the same time? Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, I have actually never seen the occupied territory from the inside. I've seen uh, those parts of the occupied territory that have been completely assimilated into Israel so that you would, you would know. But my parents said, we're not going to go there. We're not going to visit. Uh, unless Palestinians uh, invite us, because it would mean to use our privilege and come uh, on the bayonets of the Israeli army. Mm. So when there's going to be a separate Palestinian state, we will go there as tourists. Mm. Um, now, now, as even, even before this moment you describe, you're already not on the same page as much of your extended family, and you're certainly not on the same page as most of Israeli society. Yeah. Um, we're, we're in your own thinking and, and your own, as you look ahead of your own life, how do you feel about that in the sense that it'd be a heck of a lot easier. You're a smart guy. You can obviously ha have a good, successful academic career, or you probably could have had a good business career if that's where you had chosen. Um, why and, and where and when do you decide, no, I'm, I'm going to commit to this rather than my career? And, yeah. and put up with the slings and arrows of, of outraged opinion. I think the, the moment uh, that I made that choice is actually much later because it's possible to have all these opinions but still play the game and, and go to, to any uh, regular career path. Um, and, uh, but, but after I decided not to go to the army and after I decided to go to university, um, in the university I've experienced something that changed my mind. Well, but back up one moment. Yeah. You decided not to go to the army. Yeah. That's a big decision in Israel. Uh, well, I, w I was again lucky to be in this very uh, uh, interesting time period where Netanyahu just became prime minister and he was being very um, 
bombastic about his announcements and a lot of people sta uh, started doubting the, the good sense of going to the army. So it was a time where it was relatively easy to get out. Uh, at first I thought I will go to the army because I went to a very militaristic school. My school was very proud of all the intelligence officers that used to come out of it. Uh, so I thought, okay, I don't want to be an occupier. I don't want to be a combat soldier in the occupied territory. But if I'll find some kind of loophole that I can be a teacher or, or do some kind of non-combat uh, work for the army, I'll do that. And uh, Why? At that time, why? Were you feeling I mean, just a, a sense of duty, patriotism, or just something? Because in, in my entire school, there was nobody who even contemplated not going to the army. It wasn't uh, something that, that was uh, possible. So I, I had doubts. I read Catch-22, uh, but I didn't um, know anybody who decided not to go to the army. By the way, I, I have to stop for a second. Like one of the best political satires in the history of books, you, you, if you haven't read it, go on. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so but, but then I decided that in order to get that loophole, that I would not have to go to, the, uh, to, do, uh, to be a combat soldier, I uh, can go and do volunteer work for a year, work in, a, in a, an impoverished town of Israel called Tzderot, uh, and live there for a year, and then I will start my military service, that meaning that it will be a longer service. Okay, but so the moment comes later where yeah. it becomes more a profound decision for you. Yeah, well, d during that year in Sderot, I saw other aspects of the Israeli society, and that's when I decided I'm not going to the army, and instead I'm going to university directly. And, in the, and just as I was starting my, my bachelor's, uh, the second intifada started. And there was a group of what students... What year were we in? Uh, 2000. Well, I, I, I was already in my second year of bachelor's, but uh, there was a group of students and professors in Tel Aviv University who decided that they're going to bring witnesses from the occupied territory to say what's going on during the Intifada, what, what you don't read in the newspapers. And, these, uh, and, and back then it was possible, today it's no longer possible. Okay, now some of our yeah. viewers are young and yeah. they don't, won't know what you mean when you say Second Intifada. So the Second Intifada quick. started in October 2000 with a, a, a very a, a strong reaction to, a, a, then, a, to, to, to Ariel Sharon, who was... An uprising uh, of Palestinians, mostly Of Palestinians youth. against yeah. Israeli occupation. After Ariel Sharon went into the Al-Aqsa Mosque in a very uh, provocative and violent uh, gesture. Uh, but I also remember from that time that the, in the news they said, the World Health Organization said that the water in Gaza are not fit for human beings to drink. And then the, se the Second Intifada started about a month later, and I was thinking, well, this cannot be unrelated. It's not just about religion. It's also about economy. It's also about standard of living. And, and uh, the great frustration of Palestinians with how the Oslo process was not getting them anywhere. And, uh, and, and I used to support the Oslo process because I used to read the Israeli newspapers, and it seemed like Israel has been very generous and willing to negotiate uh, when, in fact, um, but, but my mother, I said she was working for the government. She would bring me some documents uh, about the Oslo process, and, and there I would be able to read about the water allocation and about land allocation and say, well, this is certainly not a fair kind of negotiation. Um, and, uh, but, but then when the Intif uh, Second Intifada started, it was repressed with extreme violence by the Israeli military, by the Israeli police. Um, and that was also a moment in which I felt that even living in Israel, is becoming unbearable for me. But there's always kind of the worry, is it going to get to the next step? I think that this immediate tendency to compare it with the 30s in Germany is, is because it's a Jewish society. It's, it's just you start going to parties and yeah. overt racism is now okay. Yeah. 
It's that, it's that level of, of dropping the pretense of, 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 of how violent is the attitude towards whether it was Jews in Germany or now Palestinians. Yeah. Uh, as a pure political equation, I, yeah. I'm not suggesting that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, then, and then it also changed, actually, because that, that's when I became politically active. That's when I started to join various organizations, go to demonstrations on a regular basis, um, and, and I started to, to meet friends. And, and that's also when I, um, going back to this idea of, uh, of being aware of my privileges, and being responsible for my position in society. I thought the most important thing I can do is join a, a, a groups which are joint struggle groups, not to just go to another one of those Zionist left groups that say, we as Jews feel sorry about the Palestinians. Joint means Jews and Palestinians. Yes, joint as, uh, well, it depends where, where you're uh, working. Uh, it's either Israelis and Palestinians, when we're talking about Palestinians from the occupied territory, or joint Jews and Palestinians inside Israel, working for social, uh, uh, justice. Right. Uh, so these these were the kind of groups that I was. Uh, okay. Joining. In the next segment of our interview, we're going to talk about a question that gets asked all the time, and, and of course there's some easy answers, but but I, I'm hoping Sheer takes us a little further, which is how how do, do a, does a people who have suffered so much uh, from racism and 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 repression and a people that have such a history all over the world of fighting for progressive ideals. How, how, how does it end up a society which seems, on the whole, to be contrary to all of that, progressive ideals? So please join us for the next segment of our interview with Sheer Hever on the Real News Network, and reality asserts itself. <laughs>